We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. E. This is the Resilient Schools podcast on the B Podcast Network. I am the creator, Jethro Jones. In this podcast, we help schools become resilient, which means that they are able to adapt and overcome any situation that presents itself. Enjoy the show. This episode is from a previous interview that I did on the Transformative Principle podcast, and I'm collecting all of my trauma-informed podcasts and resources here on this feed. So if you're interested in more of that stuff, stay tuned to future episodes where we talk about how schools can be resilient. And if you want more information, go to resilientschools.com and we can connect and do some training with your staff. Want to know one of my biggest frustrations with EdTech? Having too many tools and not enough time to use them right. They require too much training and it takes too much effort to implement it effectively. That's why it makes such a difference that IXL can do the job of dozens of individual tools. So I have everything I need for instruction and assessment in one place. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? I'm sure you want to increase achievement for all students. Find out how IXL can help. Visit IXL.com slash BE for a demo. That's IXL.com slash BE. Now, here's our episode from the vault. We are going to have a wonderful conversation with Terry Barilla, who is the Children's Resilience Initiative Director in Walla Walla, Washington. If you saw the movie Paper Tigers, you know uh, about the work that she has done and creating community-wide resources to support people who've had adverse childhood experiences and 
Boy, this is a great conversation. You are going to love it. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff and so much that <laughs> I, just, I just kept taking notes. So the show notes for this one are especially good. We talk about how to provide opportunities to calm down, how to help students get regulated, and a little bit about how the brain works and how teachers can start doing these things with students early on. Really great stuff. I hope that you enjoy listening and take a minute to share this with any educator that has students who have had experiences with trauma in their school or community or in their students' lives, because this is definitely something that can truly help them. And appreciate you taking the time to listen. And uh, just a reminder about the Transformative Leadership Summit. It's coming up here in just about a month and a half, and it's going to be awesome. So please sign up for that at transformativeleadershipsummit.com. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am very excited to have Terry Barilla here on the podcast today. Some of you may have seen the movie Paper Tigers, and Terry is the mind behind that, though not the face of it like uh, Lincoln High School that was featured in that. So we are going to talk about ACEs and how to help our students be successful. Terry, thank you so much for being here and being on the Transformative Principle podcast. Thank you for inviting me. You are very welcome. I've talked many times on the podcast about the approaches that we've taken in dealing with uh, students who've been exposed to trauma. I've done a probably a pretty awful job of explaining it with my limited knowledge. But can you talk to us uh, just a little bit about what the ACEs study taught us about how to help kids be resilient? Sure. Let me try to summarize that. What what I see... Yeah, summarize that huge thing in about a minute to two minutes. That'll be great. <laughs> right. What I saw when I became familiar, not only with the ACE study, but, but that, that has to be tied to what we now understand about how toxic stress impacts our brain development, our brain architecture. Um, not not in a negative way, but from a survival standpoint. And I think it was that survival standpoint that really caught my attention and interest. Because when we understand why our children or why our adult you know, working next to me at the office, why they react so quickly and lash out and, and have negative responses, when we understand what toxic stress does to our brain, we can then begin to understand that that behavior we see is just a result of the brain having been developed to protect that individual in a way that perhaps that individual never learned self-regulation or a, a core sense of self-esteem. And so when you feel threatened, you go to that brainstem ready to defend yourself, the fight, flight, or freeze. And that's so hardwired in us because that's how we survive. That, but that's the challenge is how do we convert what we see as, quote, negative behavior to understand what's going on in this child's life or this adult's life? What, what happened that is creating that perception of, of a threat that they are then responding to to protect themselves? So in a nutshell, it's how we look at behavior with a different lens and we come to understand that that it's not what's wrong with this person and why are they trying to drive me crazy, but what has this person experienced? What has his history been? And what in the environment is triggering him that perhaps I can help manage that environment 
And then the resilient side of that is once we start to build in the strategies for recognizing our feelings, labeling them, validating them, we then can move towards building in those regulatory skill sets and the other resilient strategies that move us to our full potential. I think you did a great job summarizing that, Terry. That was very impressive. <laughs> Way to go. Thank you. When you talk about going to that brainstem, can you elaborate on that just a little bit? What do you mean by going to that brainstem? So when we face fear, when we face a threat, our bodies are instantly uh, primed to go into what's called the HPA axis, but it's basically how we respond to stress. It's when the cortisol and adrenaline hormones are pumped out on a second's notice, a nanosecond. You don't even know you're facing a threat, but your body has picked up on it. And that takes you to the most primitive part of your brain. It's right where your spinal cord connects into your brain. Uh, and it's called the brain stem. It's also known as the reptilian brain because it was the, it's the most primitive part of our brain. But because survival is so inherent to, to our survival, that's where we go. And that's because our body shuts down all other functionings other than what you need at that moment to survive. So your heart rate increases dramatically so that your blood can be pumping so that you'll have more energy to run or defend yourself or any of those um, examples. But your other parts of your brain shut down to maximize the energy to protect you. That's why you see examples of you know women picking up cars to get it off their child or, or whatever. But it, it's so hardwired because the brain's job is survival. So if, if the brain doesn't help that organism survive, it, it's failed and it's out of the gene pool, right? That's right, yep. <laughs> so that's why it's such a survival. You have to understand, I think you have to understand, it's all about survival and protection. So the issue is, especially as we age, we tend to use these same response systems that protected us as a child that we maybe don't need later in life because we've learned other strategies, but that hardwired is always there. And and so I think that's a really important piece to to point out that it's not necessarily going to go away and we're not fixing the students that we're working with. We're not changing who they are. That's always going to be there. What you mentioned before is managing an environment to support a person. Can you talk a little bit about how that approach is different than trying to heal or fix someone? And before you do, I just want to preface that with a lot of times when I start talking about this with my staff, they think that I want them to be social workers and counselors, and I don't want them to be that. I want them to be the best teachers they can be and the best aides they can be and the best custodians and secretaries, but I want them to have an understanding of how to manage an environment better or support a particular student better without thinking that they are going to change or quote unquote fix that person. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I think it for me, it takes us back to understanding our brain architecture. And I just referenced that briefly. When you go to your brainstem to protect yourself, I mentioned that the other centers of our brain shut down because your body can't attend to everything in that moment of stress. So it goes to what it needs for survival. So for example, when a teacher understands that, 
rather than lecturing that child at that moment or expecting that consequence right then, that's the problem. The child is not up in that executive prefrontal cortex area where we can make good decisions. In fact, his or her language centers are basically disconnected when they're in that brainstem. They can't even hear the teacher. All they see is like a puppet in front of them, you know, wow, wow, wow. They, they don't even recognize the words. Why? Not because they're being a bad kid. Literally, their language function is turned off because they've got to be ready to protect themselves. And language doesn't protect you if you're trying to fight off the saber-toothed tiger in the old days or that, that threat of maybe being hit, hit, punched, or kicked. So when you understand that language doesn't work in that moment, then you won't go there, which only would further trigger the child. You don't expect a good response at the moment. You don't expect an understanding of consequences because that's not where the child is. So from that environmental standpoint, that's why you provide that opportunity to calm down. Many of the schools, once they understand the shift that we're after, they provide what some people call safe zones or calm, calming down zones. It, it allows anyone to take that moment to move out of the brainstem, meaning to get back into a regulatory state through breathing, through just taking that moment to calm down and understand that no one is about to hit you or hurt you. Uh, take those deep breaths, take a moment to close, whatever it is that, and these are the strategies that teachers then, because they're in that classroom setting, will be asked to provide. But it's all about regulating the dysregulated child. That doesn't mean you're a mental health worker. That means you understand the brain well enough to understand you ain't getting to learning <laughs> until <laughs> yeah. that child is out of that fight, flight, or freeze mentality. And if you think of Maslow's hierarchy, it's right there. I mean, he, he was so brilliant. He didn't have all the understanding we have now. But if you're in the second tier of Maslow is safety. Yeah, You cannot move up into learning and self-actualization if you're stuck down there on that safety. It's that plain and simple. And so what do we do in our environments? Typically, we only choose to further escalate that response by saying, oh, you don't belong in this classroom. I'm sending you to the principal's office because we don't understand our brains, not because any of us are, are trying to punish the child, but because we don't understand, we tend to use practices that we know don't match the state of the art in brain science. And so instead of choosing to exclude that child because of behavior, when we learn to recognize that the behavior is a call for help, and when we provide a calm space right there, and when the class all understands that any of us may be triggered by something. So here's a place we just take a couple minutes to relax. You know, there's all kinds of um, strategies for that. But what's really important is that you understand that the shift we're asking is to move away from those traditional practices that move to punishment to, to the state-of-the-art practices that recognize brain regulation and how we accomplish that. And as you saw in Paper Tigers, when a student is allowed to de-escalate, to turn back to regulatory 
state, the, you know, the status quo, then they're much more ready to say, whoa, I, that teacher didn't deserve that. I've already apologized. Uh, put me in school detention for a day to help me learn these skills. What a good response that we would all want from our students. So let's talk a little bit about moving from punishment to regulation. And how do we teach those skills to our students? And, and what skills should we be teaching to our students? I think it starts with helping the child learn how their own brains work. I mean, we teach them how to wash their hands and cover their cough, right? Yep, yep. For physical health, why don't we teach them how their brains work? That's more central even to our physical health is how our brains work to help us regulate ourselves. So I think helping, so obviously we want to move upstream to the preschool as they're first coming into school and not wait till they're in high school, you know, at an alternative high school. So when we can start to help children understand how their brains work, and typically that starts with helping them understand their own feelings and their own emotions, because many kids just don't have that level of, of support at home, which is another story we could talk about. But again, think about the teacher. If you want to get that child to learn, you're not going to do it by beating them over the head when they're in that brainstem state. You're going to get to the learning by helping them to manage, first of all, recognize, validate, and manage their feelings so that they can stay regulated and ready to learn. And so those strategies can include anything from, as a child walks into the classroom for the morning, a couple of teachers use a tongue depressor with the child's name on it, and there's two cups on the welcome table. It's, there's a happy cup and a not-so-happy cup. Where are you as you're walking into my classroom this morning? And for those kids that put their tongue depressor in the not-so-happy cup, that gives the teacher a moment to touch base with them one-on-one -on -one and say, can I help you with something? Did, did you miss breakfast? Or where are you this morning? You know, there we go to what's going on in your world that I could help you be more comfortable as you walk into my classroom so that you are ready to learn. I want to reiterate, though, it's not about a happy or not happy cup. It's does that teacher understand that shift in her, his or her own mental model about behavior and children? Because the happy cup's not going to work for you if you then, again, use it from a, a more traditional punishment kind of concept. So that's one example. Where are you as you're walking into my classroom? Because if I can't help you feel ready for learning right now, your whole day is probably going to be a problem for you and every other teacher. So if they need a protein break, give them a protein break. If they need a moment to talk to the intervention specialist because maybe something did disturb them last night or this morning, give them those couple of minutes. Give them time to go to that calming spot and just take a moment to be present and to be in that safe environment. Many teachers have gone towards a mantra, a song that they would sing as a group that says, we are safe when we're together. The teacher's job is to help support that safety, and each child's job is to support that safety. And so there's other strategies like the kangaroo pouch, where if a teacher recognizes a child 
is starting to escalate, they invite that child to take their kangaroo baby and put it in the in the teacher's pouch for that moment that the child regulates in the calm zone. And so everyone can celebrate that, look, um, Johnny took those three breaths. Maybe we all took three breaths to help the whole classroom remember about safety first. And, and then we welcome back into learning. So it starts with that paradigm shift that when I regulate the environment to address that perception of threat or lack of safety, I can actually help my students be ready to learn. And it might only take a couple minutes in the morning to do that. It might take a couple more minutes than that. But let's start the process. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that that I've seen with that is that students are able to articulate that when given the opportunity, but they're not able to articulate that unless they've got some support. And you talked about teaching them how their brain works at a very early age. And I I agree with how important that is. Just one personal example. I have a son who is seven years old and when he gets upset, then it's easy for him to lose focus of everything else like it is for everybody, right? He goes to that brainstem. And so what I've started doing is this doesn't take any time. I just repeat back to him the concern or complaint or whatever it is that he's upset about. I just repeat that back to him. So my sister took my toy away. I can then say, your sister took your toy away. And that just that one little thing brings him way down from his escalation of his attitude and brings him way down. And just something that simple is is very easy. So you've given a bunch of strategies when those are preventative that you've talked about mostly. What are some that we can do in the moment when the student is out of control and not reacting, as we would say, appropriately to what's going on in the classroom? And your point is perfect because what you're doing is, first of all, you're being present with that child to recognize where he is That's important. This is all about being present with the child and recognizing that initial escalation. You're then validating him by saying, I see you're upset. The next step, I'm sure, would be to say, wow, you have a big feeling right now. And I can understand that when when your sister takes your toy away, that makes you feel bad, doesn't it? And so you're noticing you're naming, you're validating that, yes, you have that right to feel angry. Anybody that has a possession taken from them (laughs) would feel angry. But here's the big step then, is how do we manage that in a a more pro-social way? So next, where are your words? When you take my toy, that makes me feel very angry. Please ask if you may borrow my toy. So that was just finishing up those steps that you mentioned. Yeah, I appreciate that too, because I i wasn't quite there yet with my own child. So I will be now. Thank you. I took yeah, notes. Yeah. <laughs> Four-step process. First is being present because so many of us just don't even see what's going on. We forget to notice. We forget to just calm, you know, stay slow enough or maybe that's not the right word, but to be present. I think that's the best way to say it. Can I even see that my child is starting that escalation or is already into it? And rather than doing the knee-jerk, oh, I'm going to punish you for having a feeling, which is what 
we tend to do. It's like, I see that you're angry. The emotion itself is totally valid. We have the right to feel any of those emotions. Where we need to help them is when you feel that emotion, do you have enough skills to manage it? And of course, in the younger ages, they don't. That's what this is all about. We have to help them learn those skills um, so that they can say, I am angry right now. I am mad at you. That at least puts it on the table rather than the hit or the kick or the blow. And then it's when you're angry, what do you do? Well, I use words to say, I am angry, but I will ask you with my words, you know, to work with me next time. In, In a classroom setting, I certainly understand the implication that a teacher faces in, in one disruptive child when there's 29 others deserving that attention. So again, when this is built in right from the beginning, when the classroom understands we're all responsible for all of ourselves, I'm not sure if that's grammatically correct, but when we understand we all help contribute to safety, we can, as a group, as a family of students, we can understand that when one of us is having trouble, we don't alienate them. We say, oh, look, he's having trouble. Let's help, just like you try to do in a family setting. So I I think that's part of that shift is how do we create those environments of safety and attachment? And when you do it right from day one, it's a whole lot easier than trying to retroactively explain that. Uh, Another shift is when a child is late coming to school. No child is responsible for them being late, right, at these early ages? Yep, yep. Punishing that child for, for whatever the situation was with a tardy slip or maybe even detention, some schools have gone to the welcome slip. We're glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. Rather than continuing to punish the child for something that's outside of his control, why don't we welcome him in now that he's here and help him be ready to learn? So again, I always go back to our our three core concepts are safety, connection, learning. And those are the three major parts of the brain in a very simplified format, which is the brainstem, the limbic system, which helps us around connection, relationship, empathy, compassion, and then the prefrontal cortex, which is learning. So when we think of what can we do to help create safety, connection, and thus learning, the, the mental model shift isn't so hard to make, nor are the strategies that encourage safety and connection. Let's talk about flex time in schools. If you've been listening for a long time, you know how important I think this is. It gives us more time for personalized learning, increasing choice and agency for students, and the increased enrollment that comes with it, dedicated time for intervention and enrichment, And overall, as school leaders, it gives us and our faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be so tough. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in and can hold us back from ensuring students make good use of their time. I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and an intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. Want to see for yourself? 
Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more about it and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's myflexlearning.com B-E. I'd like to change gears a little bit and talk about some of the complaints that we might get with regards to this. And I think that this ties into the safety connection learning and, and taking it all the way back to younger grades and, and how we deal with that. One of the things that I hear is that, well, I didn't need this when I was a kid and I had a rough childhood and I turned out just fine. What's your response to, to that approach when teachers are resistant because uh, we're making it too soft or too, too coddling for the kids? Yeah, and I, I actually really got some help early on thinking about that when we were doing a presentation for one of our law enforcement agencies in town. So adult behavior here, not, not child behavior. And, and one of the comments was, hey, I've got five of those and look at me. I did fine. I just don't think they work hard enough yeah. or whatever the comment was. And I, I thought, hmm, well, that, that's a good point. And I thought about myself. I have a history of ACEs in my family, too, and I did pretty good. So what is there? And, of course, that's the resilience. So I learned to then ask the question, okay, so you have five ACEs. Let's talk about support, mentorship, opportunity. Did you have someone that stepped in at a, at a place where those aces may have been affecting you? And the gentleman said, oh yeah, I mean, my, my basketball coach, if it weren't for my basketball coach, I probably would have dropped out of sixth grade. And it's like, oh, so you had a huge gift of attachment to a caring adult at a critical aspect of your development. Is that what I just heard you say? Well, yeah, I still am in touch with my basketball coach. I said, what if you did not have that one attachment at that point in time? What could your trajectory have been? So it really helped open up his eyes to how many times at key points in his development that somebody stepped in or there was an opportunity that opened a different door. And of course, we're talking about resilience. The number one resilient strategy is attachment to a caring adult. The more caring adult relationships we build into our children's lives, the more likely that they can buffer some of those negative experiences. And that's coming from Bruce Perry, my, my hero, national leader on a lot of this trauma work. So what can we do to create more of those environments of caring adults? So I, I think your answer to the question is it's all about those other protective factors is the fancy word for it, but but those strategies that help a child feel valued, respected, and honored, even when they just have had a blow up. And that's what Dr. Folletti, the the principal of the ACE study found when he, he called it the witnessing phenomenon. When he would witness that patient of his by asking them, how has this affected you as an adult? Whatever he could do to witness them, that's when he found that healing and that hope because they were witnessed in their humanity and validated for what they had to go through and yet be such a resilient adult. But tell me what that means witnessed in their humanity. Well, rather than than saying, wow, geez. So you sit there in this domestic violence situation and, and you know that your your partner is an alcoholic. My gosh, why don't you just leave? I mean, that could be one response to a 
client in, in an internist office because of, of the impact of domestic violence on bodily function. Instead, it would be, wow, that you're dealing with a lot. Well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't use that example because that's an active example. I was going more from a historical childhood example. I don't know if you can delete that, but uh, <laughs> it, it might be more pertinent to say, how did your family situation of growing up with alcoholism and possibly emotional abuse, how are, are you affected by that as an adult when I see that you're parenting your children? Have you been able to work through the impact of that alcoholism as a child in terms of how you're parenting? So there's no punishment or criticism of the history. It's, is there help that I could bring to you, not not right here in the 15 minutes I have with you, but uh, through other resources we could bring to the table. So it's witnessing the value of the effort and the development into adulthood, even with a history of ACEs. Okay. And so extending that to kids then, maybe witnessing the things they have been able to overcome. So, you know, I let's say I have a student who who has a single mom who has had multiple partners who have been abusive towards towards the student, towards the um, mom and others, and maybe talk to that student about how they have been able to overcome those things in the past, if you're talking about those things anyway, which we do in schools, whether we like to or not, how have you been able to overcome those things so that now we can use that to help you continue to overcome? Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, I, I think we're talking about how do we support every student, regardless of the individual circumstances? How do we create that caring, supportive environment, those caring relationships um, in a way that supports that student when when we're in the school setting. And so that means to me that we really make an effort to not get hung up on the behavior and, and go to the root cause and say, I, I see that you're upset. Let's go to the calm space and give you time to calm. It, it's not anything about, don't you know the rules? We can't accept that. It's when we alienate because of the behavior rather than say, I recognize you're upset. Let's help you return to a calmer place where I know you, you will remember you're safe. We're here to support you and, and we're ready to, to work with you. The shift is how we approach the behavior with a completely different lens. Yeah. And you know what? It doesn't even have to be this huge ace story. It could be that the child's first pet that he's ever owned is a goldfish, and he found the goldfish floating dead in the fishbowl that morning. In that moment, if that's the first death that that child has experienced, that's a huge moment of trauma in that respect of the first exposure to death. So understanding that any perception of that loss of safety and, you know, it literally could be the death of a goldfish if that's the first experience with death. Yeah. You know, I think when we think about kids that are that are struggling, we think of the worst case scenario often, but it can be very little things. And 
it's easy to forget that. So I appreciate you bringing that up, that a goldfish could be an important part of a, a child's life. And we need to be aware of that. And yeah, I'm, not, I'm glad that came up because I really work to help people understand this isn't just the 10 ACEs. Those are the 10 that were used in the very prescribed study that has all the health outcomes that came from it. But trauma goes well beyond those 10. And trauma, in fact, is the perception of loss of safety and connection. And a, a child with a learning disability coming into school every day when they may be teased or humiliated or labeled, I mean, that's a significant trauma that we sometimes may forget to include because when we get labeled, we begin to feel less than, we feel alienated. So the whole gender identity um, is a huge trauma because when you are told that something's wrong with you and you're alienated from being like us, there you go. You start that separation, that the societal separation that ends up with these huge implications. And that's why the word safety, I want to mention that because we typically think of physical safety when we use that word. But I love Sandra Bloom, uh, MD out of Philadelphia, and her work. Safety, she uses four concepts. Certainly there's the physical safety, but there's the psychological safety. And many of us can begin to understand that psychological safety. But the other two that I don't think we spend nearly enough time understanding and working with our children on and adults is the moral safety and the social safety. And when we don't feel safe in the room we're asked to enter because of maybe a learning disability, because of the color of our skin, because of our gender identity, because my cold fish just died, because my grandmother just died, because my mother left last night and I don't know where she is. Those all set the stage for do we welcome that child into our classroom and help them feel safe? Or do we say, well, obviously you don't belong in this classroom because you can't sit still and focus. And I'm not picking on a teacher, please. That's so important to me. It's about not understanding because we only now have this material to understand what's going on with those behaviors and those patterns. And when we go to the source to understand our, how our brains work, we no longer get caught up in, in wanting to punish or shame or blame because that doesn't make sense anymore. Not that it ever did, but we move to understanding this child has a need that needs to be addressed right now so that he can return to that sense of safety. I hope that's the theme of this. We're, we're talking about educators, but this is the same situation cross-sector, regardless of you know who pays your paycheck. We're all doing the best we can, but when we understand the ACE study relative to brain architecture and the impact of protective factors through resilience, we begin to let go that somebody's got to be at fault you know, somebody's got to be at blame. No, this is about understanding how we work as humans. That's the back to the witness phenomenon thing. When we can just understand this is how we're wired, and the more we help connect through relationship, the less need there will ever be to be in the brainstem. Does that make sense? Yes, that absolutely does. And one of the things that I like about it is recognizing that it's making sure that our students are in a place where they can actually deal 
with whatever's going on. And it's a, a difficult thing when the principal's office is by virtue of its name and location almost impossible to make a safe place because, you know, even adults come into my office and say, oh, I'm getting called to the principal's office and always make jokes about it. And, you know, it's it's frustrating to me because I want that place to be a place where you go to be respected, appreciated, understood, listened to and all that. And it is incredibly difficult for me to make my office that kind of a place. And I've done a lot of physical things to make it that way. But even still, people will stand outside my door and not come in because it is the principal's office. And those are embedded in their belief system and their culture. And I'm not going to do anything to to change that. I'm just going to let them know that I am a person that they can talk to, that they can be emotionally safe with. And that that's a, a difficult thing to teach adults and kids and everybody. And you're right that it's not it's not just about kids. It's it's for others as well, including the adults in my building who have had traumatic experiences. And, you know, I need to be sensitive to that as well. One of the uh, complaints that I hear is that this takes too much time and I can't ever get to just teaching because this takes so much time to pay attention, to notice and listen and talk and all that. And I can never, I'm never going to be able to get to my content because I've got so many kids that have these issues. What am I supposed to do now? What's your response to that, Terry? Well, granted, the the older the child, you know, the more that all those patterns have been ingrained and it's like the ruts in the snowstorm. you know, you're, you get in that rut. And of course, it's your default response is uh, are those behaviors because it's what you were you you learned worked. So as you saw with paper tigers, when when you're already into high school, that's a much different issue because it's so ingrained, but there they had the health center right next door, literally on the same campus. You just had to walk across the soccer field and you had folks that could spend more time with you in that moment of upset if a couple minutes of regulating wasn't sufficient. So I think it's unfair to suggest that every single classroom is going to be able to do that right on the spot, especially the older the child is. Exactly. Start sooner and earlier. So, for example, we just did some major training with our Head Start team so that we're helping staff right from preschool build in this concept that the more we can create that safe environment, the less likely the child's going to start these patterns or continue the patterns all the way up into high school. So having a calm room, I'm thinking of one of our elementaries that now has a, a beautiful two, two room uh, little suite <laughs> dedicated as the calming room. So when the teacher is maybe not able to help that child regulate within a minute or two in the classroom, they're invited, not not as punishment. That's a huge part of this. It has to be viewed as, I see right now you're not feeling safe. Let's go to the calming room because teacher Jody will help you with your feelings. And when teacher Jody sits with that child, it's all about, wow, I see you have these feelings. So we're back into that strategy of wow, what was going on? Let me help you identify the feeling 
to the emotion, to the behavior, to then learn better regulation, better regulatory skills. And let's work on that right here with the calm lighting, the soft mood of that room. And when you're feeling ready to, when you feel safe again, let's go back. It has to be in a non-punishment um, modality. But anywhere we can start to build this in, obviously the sooner the better. But Lincoln relied heavily on the health center to be able to have more time with students that needed more time. And of course, they offered the, the mental health support services and, and everything else there. So it wasn't only classroom based. And I think that's part of this. That's the whole concept behind our community wide initiative is no school can do this alone. We yeah. have to build in all of those bridges. The way we call that now, it, it, it may be silly, but we call it My Peace Matters. We actually have a puzzle with our logo that's called the Heart of the Matter with the safety connection and learning right on this little logo. And we made it into a puzzle. And every person owns a piece of that puzzle because we can't create that village without every piece being in that puzzle. And, and so we ask folks to commit to implementing these trauma-informed practices because my piece, your piece matters. And together we create that environment, not just in our classrooms, but across the board, so that when that student does encounter a different sector or a different partner, that same validation, recognizing you as a human being, recognizing what's behind the behavior is there. Uh, so, Terry, it sounds like this could be something where kids can start taking advantage. And once classwork gets too hard or they don't feel like doing it, they can just start acting out a little bit and say, I need to go calm down and then never be in class. How do we deal with those issues? All I can tell you is from the experience of the teachers that are doing this, that just doesn't happen. As long as you build it in from day one, and it's it's utilized in the way we've talked, that it's it's about returning to that safety, it, it is not abused. And all I can tell you is the teachers are the one telling us that. When it's done well and correctly, and when it's, I see that you're not feeling safe, just come right here to our calm zone until you feel safe. Put your sunglasses on, play with the stress ball, or, you know, relax with the stress ball. Do what Some people even have what they call the egg chair where you can lower that screen and give that child a, a minute's privacy to, to do the breathing. I mean, it, it has to be a systematic approach. You can't just throw stuff in the room and say, there's the calm room. I mean, it has to be this consolidated understanding, again, of the, of the brain. But all I can tell you is the teachers don't see it abused. Yeah, and that's been my experience as well, is that kids will take advantage of it when the teacher is not consistent, when the teacher is not serious about it. If the teacher doesn't check back in with the kid, then kids will start to say, oh, I need a break, and then they'll just go take a break. But when the teacher does check in and say, how are you feeling now, and they actually care about the student and how that student is dealing with whatever is going on at that time, that's when kids are they act appropriately. And the reality is that we may not see it, but kids want to be in school and want to be learning because learning is actually an enjoyable activity that also, I believe, builds great resilience when you 
don't know how to do something and then you learn how to do something and you can be proficient at it, those things are motivating to kids. And when we don't approach it in the right way, that's when it becomes demotivating and uninteresting to them. So it's really important. I agree with you. Every child wants to do well. The problem is when they don't have the skills and they start to fall apart there, how do we how do we treat that? Do we do it in a punishment mode or we do it in that regulatory mode? How do we bring them together? And again, I know it will be much easier when we implement this from preschool on through because you're going to have much less likelihood of having to have an entire paper tiger's impact at a high school because this will be so mainstreamed and the social emotional needs of the kids will be more fully um, appreciated. And as we understand more about the historical trauma and the epigenetics of how we pass this on, we can start to untag. The, the epigenetics tells us that we can untag this too. So it's, it's this overall movement towards understanding what this newer science is helping us learn so that we can be more effective in what we're already trying to do with a compassionate approach. But we, the adults, have better tools now. It's not that, that the teacher's lacking, it's we have a whole new skill set to learn from. And you're also right to have raised the issue around teachers themselves with, with trauma histories. It's harder for them, perhaps, to look at, at the landscape if they haven't found peace with their own history. And we know that, I mean, the number one strategy really starts with building adult skills and capabilities to then affect the child's outcomes. It, it starts with us. We need to make sure that we are able to regulate even in that moment of stress. Because you know what? If we don't, we are modeling the wrong thing. And those mirror neurons, if you guys know about the mirror neurons and how the kids mimic what they see when sometimes we're not even aware of our body language or our stance or that look, you know, the look. And so the more we're aware of our regulatory capacity and build our skill sets, it's the thing about the airlines, put your own mask on first. Yep. So all of that goes into this transformative understanding of how our bodies work, how our regulatory systems work. And if we don't get that help sooner, it's going to bite us, you know, later. So it's not meant to criticize teachers. It's, it would be like the newest curriculum and, and you, your school doesn't give you that curriculum. This is, it's not a curriculum, but it is the newest information about how our brains work. It's about our own emotional hygiene. I love that concept of emotional hygiene that one of my favorite books helps us understand. We, I've referenced it earlier. We, children all know how to wash their hands and why we wash our hands and cover our cough. But do most children, do most adults even be able to answer the question? So what are you doing for your emotional hygiene at this moment? And yet that's yeah. what this is about because our emotional hygiene, i.e. our ability to regulate ourselves and to stay present in the moment, like you mentioned with the example with your son, that is what the change agent is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So this podcast is about helping principals transform their schools to be better. So I always like to end with a action request. What is one thing that a principal can do starting this week to be a transformative principal in this regard? Oh, one thing, 
I would encourage them to dig into the, the understanding of, of that hardwired response system to understand kids aren't out to get you. They just don't know how to manage themselves. There's wonderful a couple books, if we still enjoy reading, that would be very helpful. One of my favorite right now is called Self-Reg by Stuart Shanker. Another one, the, the emotional hygiene one that I mentioned, is by um, Daniel Goleman, who wrote Emotional Intelligence. And that concept of how do we become more aware of our own emotional hygiene that, that is the precursor to even our physical hygiene. I think the message is it starts with understanding that each of us can be that person who starts to look at that lens and say, not what's wrong with this kid, but what has this child experienced? What is his environment? And what action can I take right this moment that would make that a safer environment? How can I create that sense of a safe environment physically and emotionally? And how can I foster connection through relationship? That sounds great, Terry. Thank you so much for your time. I've got a link to these books and information on how to contact you in the show notes. And I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Let me close with an even simpler sentence. We now oh, good. know that nurturance any form of that ability to reach out and connect. Nurturance is reparative and restorative. So even a simple gesture of compassion and understanding can start to help repair and rebuild those neural systems because we can change those patterns. And it starts with something as simple as nurturance, which could be that smile instead of that frown. So nurturance is reparative and restorative, and we each know how to do that. Awesome. I think that's our show title for this one. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Jethro. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things. You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to ixl.com slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's ixl.com slash B-E.